Welcome to another episode of the Animals at Home podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week, as usual. Hope you had a good two weeks since the last time we chatted. Really excited to share this episode with you. This week, I chatted with Jenna Cole, who is a biologist working in invasive species management in the Everglades. Now, this is a conversation I've been keen on having since I started the podcast. I've been really looking for somebody who is really familiar with the invasive species issue in the Everglades. If you're not familiar with it, basically in in Florida, there are hundreds of different species, mammals, invertebrates, plants, tons of reptiles that are living in, in Florida that have been brought sort of unnaturally to that location. And the reason I really wanted to have this conversation is because you guys know, if you're a listener of of many of the episodes, you know that a a sort of a a strong pillar theme of of this show is responsible pet ownership. And invasive species management is sort of the ultimate manifestation of irresponsible pet ownership and exotic animal ownership. And so I wanted to chat with somebody who is very familiar with it. So Jenna tells us all about her research, uh, capturing the black and white tegu, the black and white Argentine tegu that sort of are all over the place in Florida, the, the trap lines that they've set up, what they've learned about the species. And we obviously talk about the Burmese python as well. And she also gives us some really interesting ideas of how this issue can be thwarted through some regulation, not blanket bans, but she has some really unique ideas. So I'll let her explain that to you. So I will just get out of the way here and let you listen to my conversation with Jenna. And real quick before I hit play on this episode, just as a reminder, if you would like to support the show, you can make a donation. Typically, I only accept donations that are $1,000 or more. I'm just kidding. That felt even horrible to say. If you would like to support the show, really the best way you can do it is go share the content. Share it on Facebook, share it on forums, share it with your friends. Anybody that you think would actually be interested and engage in the content, please share it with them. The more ears we can get on the show, the better the show is going to be. So I would really appreciate that. And uh, without further ado, let's listen to the episode. Hi, I'm Dylan, and you're listening to the Animals at Home podcast. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I am excited to be here. Pretty much since I started this podcast, I've been very eager to talk to somebody who's familiar with the invasive species issue in the Everglades. And, you know, part of one of the sort of themes of my show is responsible pet ownership. And I think the Everglades is probably one of the best examples of a straight botch job when it comes to the animal and and the pet industry. It's kind of a, seems like there's a lot of craziness happening down there. So we're going to get into all that. But before we do, do you remember what made you choose a path of biology? Uh, Absolutely. Um, It's really funny because a lot of the times when I talk to other people who have gotten into the biology field, uh, everyone has a different story. Everyone got into it differently. Some people wanted to be part of biology as a child. Some people got into it much later on in their careers. And I happened to get into biology um, on an academic level, actually in my second year of college. So I was already halfway through my major before I decided, oh, hey, maybe this is something I'd be interested in. And it was, you know, I had always been an outdoorsy child, always went outside, hiked around, but never really thought I could turn that into a career. And then uh, after two years in school, I met a wonderful mentor who you know, let me know, hey, you can turn this into a career. This is what you're passionate about. And kind of pointed me to the biology field, to the biology department, um, specifically the herpetology department. Since I, you know, I'm a, I'm a turtle lover at heart. And so he was able to help me out with my, some of my first um, ever job experience 
And that's kind of what pushed it. Cause I was, I was unsure. I was interested, but still unsure. And I was recommended to get experience. And so I jumped right in with a uh, Diamondback Terrapin internship. It was actually a volunteer opportunity. And I did Diamondback Terrapin um, nesting for a couple summers and decided that that's exactly what I was interested in. And it's all been uphill from there. <laughs> so originally in university, you were not in a, so what were you majoring in originally before you switched to bio? So originally I was a zoo science major. Hmm. I okay. went to, uh, so I went to a school in Pennsylvania and I was a zoo science major. Cause that's where you think, Oh, you want to work with animals, go to the zoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I talk about it all the time on the show. There's always the people that like animals are either the vet, the zoologist, um, and typically people realize, okay, vet doesn't actually sound a lot like playing with animals. <laughs> and then sort of the, the zoo or the um, zookeeper rather, uh, you know, lots of people like to go into zookeeping as well. But obviously bio, uh, going into biology is really interesting because you get to actually study what you're doing. So did you have uh, pets and things growing up or, or reptile pets when you were growing up that influenced that sort of gravitation towards reptiles? Yeah, I actually had only one reptile pet. Uh, in my in my childhood, up until up until I turned eighteen, I actually had one pet snake um, who was just a normal ball python, and um, he was introduced to me by one of my friends in high school who had adopted uh, he adopted a fourteen year old ball python from a friend, and he absolutely loved it. And so I got to meet that fourteen year old ball python, and I was like, "Wow, this snake's really cool." And so I wanted one. So 14-year-old me begged my father to let me go and get a pet snake. And when my mother went out of town, he went and let me get a pet snake. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure it's always hard to get the first snake into the house when you have a family that's not been around snakes before. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. And they were wonderful with me. My father let me bring it home. And he was like, that's yours. You take care of it. Um, and sure enough, um, I have a sister who's back home with them. And I think right now they have four or five snakes in the house still. That's awesome. Okay, that's very cool. So, so you then you, you went and you got uh, an undergrad in, in obviously majoring in biology, and then you decided then you decided to do your master's in Florida. I think is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I was going to say I decided to do my master's in Florida. I feel like Florida almost chose me. So tell me about that. So I after I graduated with my undergraduate degree. I went straight into working. I was lucky enough to have an advisor in my undergrad, Dr. Richard Siegel, who had a great opportunity working with northern map turtles in a little town called Port Deposit up in Maryland. So straight after graduation, I was able to start working on that project. And I worked on that project for two full seasons uh, over the summer. And that was for 2015 and for most of 2016. And after getting into the, the turtles, I started thinking, well, maybe I should do grad school. And I wasn't entirely sure where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. I really liked the turtle work that I was doing, but obviously had always been drawn towards snakes, which are not, not always the easiest to find work with. And so I, had a had two options. I had a snake opportunity um, in Indiana, and then I ended up with a Florida opportunity. One of my good friends had started working in the Mazzotti lab, which is where I'm at now, and 
she had been asked, you know, hey, do you know anybody who would be interested in grad school? Do you know anybody who would be interested in coming down here for work? And the first person she thought of was me. And she called me up and said, hey, Jenna, I think you would love this. I think that this is a great opportunity. She loved it. And so she told me that she thought that I would absolutely love the work. And the only problem on my end was that I wouldn't be working directly with snakes. And so I, you know, wasn't sure, wasn't sure. And as time drew closer for me to accept the position in Indiana, I realized that, you know, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like that was where I was supposed to be. I wasn't entirely 100% sure if that program was meant for me. You know, you get a feel for the lab you're going to be in and the school program I went and visited. And last minute, and within about a month of me moving to Florida, I made a decision. um, And I sat down with my advisor and I said, look, I have a dilemma. And I'm stuck. I don't want to go to, not sure if I want to go to Indiana. I'd also been thinking about just staying in Maryland and doing work under him. And I was like, and then there's this offer from Florida. You know, I'd kind of pushed it to the side. And he looked at me and he goes, well, what's, what's wrong with Florida? And I was like, well, I guess that's the question to answer the question because there is nothing wrong with Florida. And that's how I ended up in Florida. <laughs> so I have a couple questions about that. So how, is there a reason that snake work is so few and far between? Um, no, I don't think that there's a really good straightforward answer. A lot of it depends on Funding, for one, there's not always a lot of funding unless you have a critically endangered um, or charismatic snake species. And so funding is a portion of it. And the other portion I think that's really big is that it's super competitive. And so if you have someone who's already into the snake world, already worked on projects with these animals, then it's a lot easier for someone who already has years of experience to get into it. And it's not always the easiest to find an entry-level position. Right. So what was the work in Indiana? What, what, was, what would the work have been for you? So I would have been working on a long-term uh, management project and study of the Massasauga rattlesnake. Oh, okay. Oh, we had, um, I, I had Dr. Moore on a, several months ago from, I think she might be in your area as well. I forget where she is. But Jennifer Moore, but she and she does lots of research on, on the Massasauga rattlesnake. So that's a cool species to study. But I'm sure the now that you're in Florida, even though the so the original job description for the Florida research didn't involve snakes. What what did it look like? So my original offer for Florida was to come down as an intern for three months, see how I liked the work that I would be doing, and then make a decision for grad school from from there. So. Very nice, non-contractual, could come down for a couple of months, see if I liked it. And if I didn't like it, I could leave. And that job description was as an invasive species tech. And so it was working on various projects that involved invasive species management. One of the main projects being the Argentine black and white tegu trap line. Gotcha. So, and then obviously now that you're in Florida, you are surrounded by snakes regardless. I'm sure you're interacting with snakes on a re- regular basis, or actually I know you are considering your Instagram. What is the Everglades like as a reptile lover? It's amazing. 
it's amazing and it's also heartbreaking honestly because you you get a reaction from people now everyone says oh that's where the pythons are and it's it's not a positive thing it's not a happy thing it's 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 a very you know, negatively connotated phrase that you hear quite frequently people don't think of the everglades as this beautiful system they think of it as oh that's where the pythons are and it's unfortunate to you know especially to hear the the negative connotation with snakes in general i mean as a snake lover you always get people commenting about how oh yeah i saw one of those oh i used to kill them in my backyard you know you always have the, the negative phrases and the, the people are scared of them um but the everglades is so much more than burmese pythons so it's really really unfortunate to hear people think of it as you know just chalk it up to oh that's where the pythons live um but it's it's an amazing place it's beautiful you have not only do you have the native snake species and native turtle species but you also have the non-native reptiles which it's it's like a huge melting pot so even even the reptiles that aren't supposed to be there they're they're quite interesting to study and so interesting to see interacting in that system yeah, it is really mind blowing the diversity of reptiles and amphibians in that area. It's it's just like the perfect storm of conditions for almost any reptile. Yeah, absolutely. It's it literally is. It's got an island like geography. So water on three sides, and to the north we have the frost line, and that limits the distance north that a lot of species can travel. And so it it truly is like its own little island down here, and we can get so many different species that are able to thrive. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. And I know that whenever you guys go out and do surveys and whatnot, it just seems like you stumble across everything. Oh, yeah. And don't be fooled. There are nights where we stumble across absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I guess you're not taking pictures of uh, empty hands. <laughs> so when, when I was kind of prepping for this conversation, I started looking into the invasive species. And of course, even me, you know, you think of the invasive invasive species in the Everglades, and of course, the Burmese python comes to mind right away. But I was actually really blown away at how many invasive species are in Florida right now. Like there is, like there's mammals, and I don't. I mean, I read on the government of uh, Florida website that there's even some monkeys, like some rhesus macaques, or, or I, th I think a, a population of those that are invasive to Florida. So it, it really blew my mind how many animals are there that were not native. Oh yeah, they're between the plants and the vertebrate species, not, not like fish. I mean, fish are huge and that's not one that people usually think of are, yeah. are invasive fish species, but between the fish, the reptiles, the mammals and the plants, um, there's several hundred invasive species in Florida. It's really crazy. I, I mean, the fish is a good example because I mean, even the ocean has invasive lionfish, which seems like how can the ocean have invasive species? It seems like it would just not be possible. But and then obviously the waterways, there's people pulling out giant like Amazonian fish or Amazonian fish out of the uh, the waterways inside the cities. It's it's really, really crazy. And are, are almost all of them contributing in a negative way? Or is there any some that are sort of benign? So that's is a good question and there's actually a, a difference in term for those animals who are introduced but not necessarily causing any negative impacts and that's a simple they're just a non-native so it's an introduced animal it's not native to the area but it can't be deemed invasive because it's not having any negative impacts 
a good example of one of those. And, and you know, in some cases, I, I truly think the lack of an impact is due to a lack of being studied. And so an example would be like veiled chameleons. Um, they are a species that has not been heavily studied in Florida, but they do exist here. And so far, it doesn't really seem as if they are having a negative impact on anything. They are crawling around in trees. They don't really go super far, super fast. And they eat bugs and smaller lizards. That's yeah, so, that, so that's interesting. So you have those two classifications because it does seem like it's almost an unsolvable problem just because there are so many there and the climate's just always going to work for their reproductive systems, obviously. And I mean, where I live, we have six months of the year where everything freezes solid and clearly invasive species are much harder to come by. So in terms of what reptiles are invasive, can you list like a few of the sort of the, the major players? Yeah, of course. So the two big ones right now are Burmese pythons, obviously. And the main focus of my studies, which are Argentine black and white tegus. In addition to those guys, we also have Nile monitors. We have North African rock pythons. We have agamas. There are um, spectacled caiman here. They've caught um, Nile crocodiles before. Those are more of a, a you know spur of the moment, introduced, not established um, kind of thing, rather than an established population. But brown anoles, brown basilisks, green iguanas are a good one. The list just goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, and that's that's what I noticed when I went onto this. I think it was a government website. Just the list under reptiles just keeps going, and and they do kind of use those terms in terms of you know the reported species, and then obviously the the ones that are established where there's proven proven uh, populations that are living. So let's get into uh, so your specific research. So obviously you're uh, looking at the tegu. Can you kind of tell us and the listeners what a day in, in your life looks like when you're doing your research? So my research focuses on RGG black and white tegus. And the main way we study them is through a trap line. So a typical day for me is trapping and removing of these Argentine black and white tegus. We start on a Monday, we end on a Friday. We go out every single day to check the traps and they're live mammal traps, box traps. Um, they're called have a and we also use a smaller trap type called a tomahawk and bait them with chicken eggs. And they are egg eating species at their hearts. So the chicken eggs work very, very well for capturing them. And I start at one end of the trap line and I drive to the other. Any tegu that's encountered along the way, if it's in a trap, it's removed. We do occasionally encounter them running around outside, walking around. I mean, this is where they're living right now. And so if we do see them running around, we end up taking a GPS point location so that we have an, op an, uh, an opportunity to exciting is what we call them recorded so we know that you know we even if it's not in a trap it was next to a trap it was this close to a trap and this is the time we saw it walking around this is when it was most active how many traps do you have on the line so this year we have 140 traps out wow and how many would you catch in a sort of an average week on average each week um in our peak season we'll probably bring about 50 animals in each week. Wow. Um, 
And then at the, obviously at the beginning of the season and the end of the season, it's kind of like a normal curve. You don't, you don't get too many, you get the occasional one or two. Um, but then in peak season over the summer, we start pulling in about between, either usually between five and 10 every day. So is the goal with the, the trap line, are like, I know obviously you're trying to remove the population from the Everglades. Is, is that the main thing? Like it, is the actual goal to eradicate them that way? Is that, is that possible by just collecting them through the trap lines or is it sort of a never ending game? That's a good question. And it's not one that we have a complete answer to. So the point of the trap line at the moment, um, for the University of Florida is to help in maintaining that area. That is a core area. We want to keep those animals from spreading outside of it. We'd like to keep them as contained as possible. As far as eradicating them by only using traps, it may not be possible because we don't have an exact estimate of how many animals are actually out there. If we're dealing with, you know, 2000 animals that we're only trapping a small percentage of every year and they're still able to, you know, reproduce successfully every year, obviously trapping and removing, you know, if we are dealing with a thousand animals every year and we're removing 300 and then the next year we get another thousand, uh, it does seem like a never ending battle, but that's one of the reasons that we are trying to maintain the core area and then also trying to look at behavioral patterns, movement patterns, dietary patterns to see if there's a better way to target these animals. Um, so for example, uh, one method that's been explored is actually targeting them when they are in their burrows for the last couple months of the year in early January, February, these tegus actually are burrowed underground and they roommate. So it's a reptile hibernation and they just hang out for the cooler months. And so the idea is to try to figure out an appropriate way to target those burrows and maybe dig them up, um, and get them when they're not moving around as opposed to trapping them while they're all running around and super active. So there are different methods being explored, but at the moment, containment is, is the, the main goal. Obviously, eradication is the ultimate. We, yeah, it's the ultimate goal. That's what we would like to see. But for the moment, we don't have a foreseeable way to achieve that beyond continuing studying them. Right. Oh, that makes sense. And I know that uh, one, one of the things I'll include in the show notes in this episode was that little piece you guys did for the, I think it was great big story or, or that I think the journalism, uh, the journalist site, and it just shows you guys actually going around and, and catching them. So that was pretty cool. And one of the things that I learned in that video is you actually also tag some of them and put some radio, uh, like a radio collar on or a GPS or something. And then you can study their movements that way. Yeah, so we have these little transmitters, and um, I refer to them as backpack transmitters. They are attached um, on the hind leg, hind legs like a backpack over across um, their back legs, and the antenna sticks out towards their tail. So it's more streamlined with their body. And those transmitters are VHF transmitters, which stands for very high frequencies. So we can go out with an antenna and figure out their location based on whatever frequency that transmitter is set to. And then we also have GPS transmitters attached to those. So what we'll do is we'll use the very high frequency transmitter to locate the animal. And once we're close enough to that animal, we're able to pull out a computer and download those GPS points so we can see where that animal has been um, while we work weren't tracking it. And we'll actually use it to check, double check the VHF transmitters as well. So we'll have a GPS point and see if it's close to where we tracked it. Because obviously if your GPS unit is not giving you an accurate GPS location, then that's going to have to be swapped out. So it's a, a good way to double check where they're going. And through 
that information, we are able to see their movements, how, how far they're moving, where they're going. Um, if we have two tracked tegus together, which has happened before, we can see how they interact. If they run into each other, do they turn around and go opposite directions? Do they hang out for a while? Um, you can see all sorts of different behavioral patterns and see how they're using the landscape that they're living in. So what are some of those things that you guys have learned that maybe you, you were kind of sh- surprised to, to find out? So one of the big things that we have learned from that tracking study is the use of levees for tegu movement in the area that we're trapping them in, which makes sense when you look at the trapping data as well. We have traps that catch exponentially more tegus than any of the other traps. And with the uh, VHF transmitters, we were able to see the tegu movement and see that they do follow the system of levees. So the same levees that we are driving to get around in this marshy area, they are actually walking along um, to travel from point A to point B. And with a key point being intersections. So wherever two levees meet, you got two crossroads. So people, they're, I say people, but the tegus will run into each other more there. And so you have end up with these hot spots where the inter- road intersections are. Interesting. So they're just, obviously, maybe their, their native habitat doesn't have as much that marshy area that they're used to or, or sort of evolved to, to get through. So they just hop up on the roads and, and then run along there. Yeah, um, there's potential for that. There's also the fact that the marshes will actually flood. Um, so on the dry season, they, they do tend to use the marsh a little bit more. It's a little bit uh, easier to move through when there's not a whole bunch of water there. But in the wet season, it does flood and they either have to swim or swim and climb over sawgrass, which makes movement not as easy, whereas these levees are a lot more accessible. Gotcha. And just to be clear, th- this invasive population is almost certainly due to the pet trade. Is that right? Yeah. So, and in in general, we don't have tegus in Florida, so they had to have been brought here by someone. And so these animals have been imported from South America for many years now. And the general consensus of their introduction is pet trade, uh, be it irresponsible pet owners, irresponsible pet distributors, and irresponsible importers. So it's just either purposefully released or accidental escapes. Is there any speculation on how many specimens must have escaped to establish such a thriving population? Like, could it have just been a, a handful or is this something that happens so like the pets are escaping so often or they were escaping so often that that you're left with this population? So the, the magic number is two. Yeah, <laughs> you need two for sure. <laughs> that I knew. <laughs> yeah, so the magic number is two. Um, I, I believe a, a handful were released. It doesn't take very many. You do have to have a little bit of genetic diversity in order to maintain uh, a, a healthy population. Too much inbreeding leads to a lot of genetic mutations. But initial initially, it, it only could have been a handful of individuals. So when you guys are looking at these uh, specimens, it doesn't seem like there's lots of inbreeding going on. Like the genetic diversity does seem to be fairly vast. So the animals that we're seeing are appear to be healthy. They don't seem to have any uh, big issues. One of the common issues we see um, appears to be from incubation temperatures. From what I've, I've talked to a couple of breeders about it, because it's something that I find super interesting. With they, the tegus will actually end up with a kinked spine. So at either point, either I've seen them from right behind their head all the way down to the tip of their tail. I've seen just tails, and they uh, end up with a zigzag. And so super kinked spine, and that 
seems when I've asked a, a couple breeders, it seems that that's usually indicative of improper incubation temperatures, too hot, too cold, inconsistent. Um, but it does not seem to affect those animals very much. I've seen hatchlings with it and I've seen full grown adults with it. So they are able to survive with that condition. But other than that, they all appear to be very healthy, but I don't know to what degree of inbreeding you would need to have in order to see any crazy mutations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually interesting about the kink spine. I have a boa who has a kink tail and according to the breeder that the, they actually lost power during uh, the, the pregnancy. So the, the temperatures dipped. So I wonder if that's sort of a, and I actually had cichlids once had eggs and all the babies had kinked, kinked spines as well. So I wonder if there's something, if those are correlated anyway, but let's talk about the damage that these tegus are, are sort of doing to the environment. So the damage these things are doing is another great point. I'm, I actually am studying diet samples for these animals for my thesis. And diet is a great way to learn about direct predation, direct interactions these animals have with their environment. What animals are they eating? What animals aren't they eating? And what, what, what potential impacts can they have? So the big one that is super concerning is that tegus are egg eaters. They, by, by, you know, almost by trade, are targeting ground nests. And that's seen in their native range. They actually have been known to predate caiman nests in South America. And here in Florida, we've actually seen them predating alligator eggs. And they'll go back and they'll take egg after egg after egg and eat them until a whole nest is gone. So the, one of the biggest concerns is these animals are very, very close proximity to Turkey Point Power Plant, which is a big area for American crocodile breeding. So if these animals are to get into that area in any type of quantity, they could heavily impact the breeding of these American crocodiles, which are a threatened species. So having an egg predator get into an area where a threatened species is nesting could absolutely destroy the population. And not only of American crocodiles, but we also have animals like the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow and other ground nesting birds who could be impacted by these animals. Yeah, they sort of, the tegu kind of reminds me of almost like a badger. Like they're just kind of aggressive. And I, I mean, I don't know how aggressive they are, although I think they can be aggressive, but they just terrorize things like they they're, they're very good diggers and they're going to get into nests and and eat way more eggs than they probably need to yeah they get they get all over they can they don't usually climb trees but they climb over rocky outcroppings they'll dig into the limestone so anything even even animals that also live in burrows they'll go into their burrows after them and so they're able to just really heavily exploit these habitats and make a meal of whatever fits in their mouth. Right. Yeah. So this is the question that I know you always have to answer on Instagram. And I would like to give you an opportunity to explain it because I, you see, I see lots of people that are upset with the, the process. So obviously, th when these animals are caught, they're euthanized. And can you explain why that needs to be done? And I, I know there's a lot of animal lovers that listen to this and people that see you on, on Instagram and they actually get very upset, but I don't, I, and I understand, and I know you understand why they get upset, but there's actually a really important reason to make sure that the population is being eradicated. Yes. So people love to ask the question, what happens to the tegus once they're captured? Unfortunately, 
for almost all of these animals, they are euthanized. And it's not a happy thing. Um, I don't think there's a single person in invasive species management who actually enjoys euthanizing an animal. And so it's, it's definitely not, you know, the brightest part of your day, but it is absolutely necessary. So these tegus, they, they can be tamed down. Uh, they, they, they are absolutely can be taken into captivity, fed, and they will calm down. I wouldn't say you could get them to the level where you can hold them and cuddle them like one that had been raised in captivity, but you can, you know, build a relationship with them. They learn where the food comes from and they don't see you as a threat anymore. So it's not because they can't be tamed down because they can be. Unfortunately, the issue is there are two big ones, which is one, we can still, we still have a lot we can learn about these animals. And so having them euthanized, you're able to see how they impact the environment over several years. So for example, in the context of my diet study, I can look at their diets in 2016, I can look at their diets in 2017, I can look at their diets 2018, and I can see changes in their diet. So have they overexploited one animal that they've been eating or one resource and now they've moved on to another one? Have they encouraged on new habitat and been able to predate upon a threatened species? I'll be able to see those changes and those changes could help with ma informed management as far as spread. Like just because I'm catching them in, maybe I'm catching them in an area where there are no crocodilian eggs, but I catch an animal that has a stomach full of crocodilian eggs. And then I know it traveled. So it traveled someplace where it had access to these eggs, even though there's none in the foreseeable area. And now I need to know where they went, how did they get there? And so I can start exploring beyond, you know, maybe my study area to see where they've, they've moved to um, and what, what creatures they're exploiting, what resources they're exploiting. So there's still a lot we can learn. So that's one big one is we wanna be able to learn as much as we can from these animals. And the second big one is that, unfortunately, there's not enough homes for all of them. What's gonna end up happening a lot of the times, and there are private trappers who trap the wild tegus and will put them back into the pet trade. Um, there's nothing regulating that right now. There are no legal binds preventing tegus from being pulled out of the wild and, and rehomed or resold. Um, but it brings it back full circle to how they got there in the first place. And it's from accidental escapes or accidental releases or purposeful releases. People think that you know they can't take care of the animal anymore. The animal's sick, um, they're moving, you know, all sorts of reasons. And they think that, you know, all these animals live in the Everglades already. So if I just put one more there, he'll be happy and he'll survive instead of going through the process of rehoming or, um, you know, properly, you know, taking care of this animal for its entire life. So it, it kind of, it's like an open system as far as, you would catch an animal from the wild, give it to a homeowner, and especially these animals that are not entirely the friendliest, if you sell it to someone who's unsuspecting and they get a very defensive animal that they don't know how to handle, there's a chance they're either going to give it back to whoever they got it from, and who knows if, that, if it's gonna get resold again, or it's gonna end up back in the Everglades potentially. So we wanted to kind of keep these animals from circulating. Um, another good example would be for feral cats. You can't, you can't find a home for all of them and shipping them across the United States, shipping them back to where they came from can have a huge impact on whatever area they end up in. 
So as we ship them back to where they came from, South America, which these animals came out of the pet trade. So they have been exposed to all sorts of diseases. Not only that, but they've been living in Florida. We actually are having issues with parasites. Um, there was just an article written about how Burmese par parasites that likely came in on Burmese pythons are actually contributing to the death of some of our native rattlesnakes here. So any parasites that they pick up from Florida, if we send them back to South America, there's a potential that our Florida parasites could start killing animals in South America. And it's the same for wherever they get sent. If they are infected with any disease or any type of parasite um, or plants are a good one, they, they eat plants. So if you take uh, a non-native plant and they, they go and poop somewhere else, they're spreading non-native plants, which is doing nothing but exacerbating the problem. So we do the best that we can with what we can, if they are able to be transferred to other research projects, we do transfer them to other research projects when that opportunity arises. Um, and other than that, they unfortunately are euthanized and we do necropsies. So we look at all their internal organs, their health, what they're eating, um, if they are reproductively active, all sorts of things. And so we try to learn as much as we can from these animals as possible. Yeah, no, I think that is a great answer. And I know it's hard to type all of that out on Instagram. So. I and it, and it makes sense. And it actually, it wouldn't make any sense for you guys to put them back into the pet trade. And I, and obviously that's clear to you guys. You guys are animal lovers. It's not, it's not that you enjoy euthanizing them. Like you said, it's just the, the pet trade is actually responsible for this devastating invasive species. And part of the responsibility of that is actually having to euthanize these animals. It just sucks that that's what we have to do. But th those are all really good points for why we can't just put, keep them because it, uh, it's that won't actually solve the problem. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate too because you know it, it's not every owner, and I think that's a really important distinction. Um, when I respond to people online, a lot of the times you know that is long to type out, it is long to explain, and I'm more than happy to talk to people um, private messages to explain in more detail. But it's not every pet owner, it's not every breeder, it's not every importer. Like there's, there's a clear understanding that, you know, just because you're an importer of a certain species does not mean that you're an irresponsible person, does not mean that you're a bad person. And I think that's a big misinterpretation when I answer that question, um, because I, I'm honestly a, a, a huge pet owner. I have several pet snakes. I have a couple pet geckos. Um, so I, I absolutely partake in the pet trade, but I do my best to make sure that my animals uh, are contained and stay contained. So it's, a, it's like I'm supporting the pet trade and I'm also supporting invasive species management, which is a result of pet trade. And so it's, it's hard to walk both lines because you do understand where people are coming from, but you also understand the management aspects. But when it comes down to it, if you do end up with in, in having a moment, and it, it doesn't have to be on purpose, you know, you accidentally have an animal escape, um, you know, this is something that can happen. You accidentally have one or two escapes and then suddenly you have a non-native population in the Florida Everglades and this non-native population, this invasive population of tegus is potentially going to cause issues for the pet trade. Um, and for pet owners, they had a bill that was pushed, um, to make tegus and green iguanas, um, educational only. You had to have a special permit to own them and you were not gonna be able to own them as personal pets anymore. It was gonna be strictly educational animals. And that's in part due to them being such a huge problem in the Everglades. So that, that bill did not get passed. So there's still no regulation on tegus. Um, but 
that's the type of bill that has come out of uh, this issue. And I, I personally feel regulation would help, but I don't think you should limit what people can have. I think you should limit how they can have it. So cage requirements, housing requirements, you have to get them microchipped so that if they do escape, you know, it can be traced back to you. So it gives people more incentive, like to say, hey, I had an animal get out of my yard. This is where it was. And not only that, but if you have an animal get out of your out of your yard, out of your house, and you report it, there's a, the sooner you report it, the higher chance there is that you're going to be able to catch it and either get it back or keep it from causing any damage to the environment. Right. No, I think that's actually a, I love that answer. And I had talked to someone who lives in Australia, and that they their regulations around the pet trade are some are, are kind of like that. Like obviously they do have some restrictions of what you can own, but they do kind of follow it up with making sure the cages are uh, at the right requirements and whatnot. And and I think some people forget that like there are places, cities in Canada which have just blanket bans on almost all reptiles. And there's clearly not a chance of having an invasive species issue. It's just because we have people who are afraid of snakes or afraid of lizards and like you can't own an iguana or a tegu in a lot of big cities in Canada because, you know, you can't own a lizard over two feet. Like they just put an arbitrary number on it. And, and, and that could easily happen in, in a place like Florida, just because of there, there's way more evidence to back up why people shouldn't own it. So I, I do think that sort of regulating in that way would be a really interesting way to uh, help people be responsible with their animals. Oh, absolutely. And we do end up with some of those blanket bans. Um, we actually had this year, earlier this year, yellow anacondas were completely banned from being owned in Florida. And so anybody who owned those animals um, had to unfortunately forfeit them. Um, and there's been no, no reports of invasive yellow or like an invasive yellow anaconda. There's been no reports of an established population. So the only thing backing up that ban is, well, they potentially could become invasive. They potentially could thrive in this environment. And because of all those potentialies and maybes, that's what brought the ban. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I'm actually surprised Florida doesn't have more bans because of the issue. And But yeah, like you said, sort of establishing good, responsible pet ownership is a lot better than just telling people you can't own them because people will still own them. They're going to hide them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they won't report them when they get lost. You know, when they do escape, of course, they're not going to report an escaped illegal animal. Right. And there there actually have been cases. Um, there's a, a paper online by Kenny Crisco who lists all of the um, non-native animals that have been seen in Florida, every single one where they were at. And, and they have had venomous snakes that had escaped. And so venomous snakes is one you need. You need so many hours to own them. You need cage requirements. And so there are people who either move here temporarily or want to own a species that they don't have the hour requirements for. And um, people do have them illegally. And if they were to escape, they don't get reported. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not anything against the snakes. And it's honestly not anything against the owners. But it, what happens is the fear of getting in trouble and the fear of of all the, the consequences, it keeps people from wanting to do the right thing. And, you know, cause it's like, you know, you get an animal out, they want that animal back. Like there's, unless they purposefully let it go, like there's a really good chance that that animal escaped and they want it back and they're doing everything they can to get it back. Um, but they don't want to tell anyone that it happened. And so that limits what you can do. It limits your scope, how far you can look, what you can look for. You can't just go and tell your neighbors, Oh, Hey, like, you know, have you seen the snake that got out of my house? So a lot of times they will go unreported until, you know, something terrible happens or they, they end up, um, a lot of the species that have been seen um, 
are actually already dead. They've hit, run over by cars. Um, you know, so it's like that, that's something really unfortunate that, you know, we could potentially get that animal back. And in some cases, if you don't have the appropriate permits like that, what animal would get confiscated. Um, but to me having, if I had, if I were to have an animal that I, you know, I obviously didn't have permits for, but I, I cared about and I wanted it and it, something terrible happened and it got out and it escaped. I would much rather have it confiscated and given to someone who has the appropriate permits than to walk outside of my front door and find a dead in my parking lot. Exactly. You know? Totally. So right now is the pet trade in Florida sort of a net negative? Like, is there, is it wreaking more havoc than it's worth? Um, that's a good question. And it's one that I don't have a good answer for actually, because I think it, it becomes, um, more of a, it's more of an opinion, a perspective from, from me rather than anything, you know, concrete or scientific. And I don't think that it's necessarily wreaking havoc. I mean, there are definitely species that, um, have been introduced from the pet trade and are established and not doing wonderful things for the environment. But as far as the pet trade itself, you know, it's, it's not that every single person involved in that pet trade is a bad apple. It's just the couple here and there that are having escapes or releases happen. So uh, overall, I don't think it's a net negative. I think it's, I think it's a, a big learning experience right now. Sure. So then let me ask you this. Do you think, how much do you think the hobby influenced you to follow the path that you're following right now? So it influenced me to get interested in reptiles for sure. And then once I started managing um, these invasive you know, reptiles, I think my eyes have been opened a lot more because I do talk to people in the hobby on a different level than I used to, you know, I used to just be, Oh, wow, those animals are really cool. Like that's awesome. And now I'm interested in why they produce them, how they produce them. Are they produced in captivity? Are they imported? Um, are they wild caught? Like you can get wild Florida, wild caught veiled chameleons here where people will go out and pull them out of trees and you're like, Oh, it's not imported. It's Florida wild caught, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's really interesting. Like all these questions that I, I now think to ask that I never thought to ask before, and you get really good perspectives because, you know, it's really easy for me to sit here on a, on a management side and, and look at, you know, for example, that yellow anaconda band and say, oh, well, I totally understand why they did like those animals could live in Florida. They could become established. Um, and they did a flat ban, but there's not a flat ban on tegus and they're invasive yeah. and there's not a flat ban on Burmese pythons and they're invasive. And so it's like, there's things like that, that don't make sense. And I'm not sure of all the things behind it of why, why, you know, why Burmese pythons aren't banned yet, why tegus aren't banned. Um, and I'm not saying that they, they should go straight to a ban at all, but it's like, there are certain things that don't make any sense. Um, and so I understand, you know, instead of just looking at it from a management perspective and saying, oh, well, I, I get why they did that. Um, I take a step back and I, and I think about, you know, why certain things aren't happening and why certain animals aren't banned and aren't regulated. And I'm, I'm able to, to get other people's perspective on it and stay open to, to their experiences because I'm, I'm not an expert in the pet trade. I, I do not you know, study anything with imports or exports. I don't study how to breed certain animals. Um, I just study how established non-native animals affect environments. So it's really interesting to me how much we can actually learn from the pet trade still as far as even as far as management well uh, ex yeah exactly and i mean so that's always what i'm trying to figure out like i i like i'm trying to determine whether or not 
there's an ethical reason to keep exotic animals. And I do think there is. And that's why I ask if, if, if it sort of influenced you to get into it, because the hobby does introduce a lot of people at sort of a grassroots level or grassroots level. But also, just like you're saying, that the, the people who are working directly with these animals as hobbyists, you like you as a scientist are approaching them for information because th that's like their one niche and they know it inside and out. So th there's clearly some positive that can come out of out of these animals. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, great examples are, are captive captive breeding programs in general. Um, a lot of endangered animals and, you know, it's there. It always goes back to like obviously in the pet trade at it at, at the very beginning, every single animal in captivity came from the wild. You yes. can't argue that it came from the wild. It was collected. Um, and so a lot of people have issues with that, but it, when it comes down to animals that are critically endangered and may potentially need to be reintroduced into the wild, if you have breeders who keep track of the genetics, keep their genetics pure, you are able to get genetics and help with reintroductions into native habitats. You're able to figure out, you know, if, if you've been, someone's been breeding, you know, a tortoise species in captivity for years and years and years, and suddenly that tortoise species needs to be bred back on the island that it came from. You can go to that breeder and say, hey, how do you do it? And you can start a breeding program. And you, But you need that input. You need someone who's done it. You need that trial and error. And sometimes it takes years for people to figure out how to get these animals to breed in captivity. But once you can do it, once you figure out those conditions that you need, that can be applied to conservation everywhere. Totally. Um, not, not only that, but captive breeding in the pet trade takes pressures off of wild animals usually because if you can get them captive bred, there's no reason to import them. So if you're able to get them breeding um, you know, in the United States or in captivity anywhere, um, it's a lot more likely once those are established and there's more of them, the, the market's going to stay competitive enough that you're not going to have to risk importing anything and that can take pressures off of wild populations yeah totally and i mean and a lot of times zoos and universities actually don't have the funding to say hey figure out how this species breeds or how do we get these things to, to breed in captivity because it's just it's a huge project like you said it could take years to figure it out and that's what the hobbyists are really good at because that's their one thing and they're sort of funding it on their own dollar and it doesn't have to be scientific so it's not going to cost tens of thousands of dollars and they can kind of learn it on their own Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it would take it would take us thousands of dollars and and many years. And a lot of times, you know, like long lived species, like the one that comes to mind is like a Galapagos tortoise, for example, like they take 30, 40, 50 years to even reach maturity. Yeah. And then they have to figure out how to, you know, how to do the thing to make the eggs. You know? <laughs> Try doing that for a master's. <laughs> right. And so it's just like, you know, you have you. you it would take you years and years and years to study this on your own. So you have to find other people who are willing to take over that project when you no longer can. Or if you have, you can have a hobbyist who, you know, maybe they picked it up from a friend and they pass it on to their child and they've already learned everything. They've already taken all of those steps uh, because it's what they're passionate about. It's their hobby. It's their free time. And it's not just a job. It's not, it's not just a thesis, um, which I think, does happen sometimes, you know, people, people are like, well, it's just my thesis. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just my job. I can go back and refine it later. Um, and you, you, I feel like you do sometimes end up, you know, without any passion. So it's, it's like someone's passionate for this species conservation, but they're not passionate about breeding. There's, you know, sometimes that, that lack of overlap is, is where issues occur. So it's like you, if you can find someone who's passionate about breeding and, you know, collaborate with them, 
And it was like, they did all the hard work. They figured out the temperatures. They figured out how many days it takes to incubate those eggs. Then you can talk to them. You can get that information and then you can go ahead and apply it immediately as opposed to waiting all these years for trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. There's this quote that always comes to mind for me is that the, the scientists always discover what the breeders already know. And, it, you know, the, the science is what gives us the information to understand how the mechanisms work. But typically the, the breeders and the people who work with them figure it out first. Maybe they don't know exactly what's going on, but they know how to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a funny quote. Um, <laughs> but I definitely think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a definitely a, a give and a take. Um, you know, it's kind of like, we, I always joke and say, it's, you know, it's not a fact until you study it. And so it's like, you know, we know that lizards bask. So it's like, why do they bask? And it's like, until you study what physiologically happens to them when they bask, you don't know why, but we know that they do it. And so it's, it's the why to the what. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, how does the, does the government in, in Florida pay people t when they catch Burmese pythons and, and things like of that? Because I always see people like hunting Burmese pythons or going out and trying to find them. Or do you just bring them into a government establishment and they, they euthanize them? So for the pythons, uh, it's there's multi multiple agencies involved in, in python removal. Um, you know, for example, I'm with the University of Florida. We are permitted to catch and remove pythons on our own. There are two right now python hunting programs in South Florida. One is through FWC. The other one is through South Florida Water Management District. And they have groups of um, specific people that they hired to remove these snakes. And so those people get paid. They get paid by the hour and then they get paid per snake that they remove. Um, and they actually have an, an application on their phone that they use for their, their surveys while they're looking for pythons and driving around to report their time. Um, but it's also taking data points. So my lab actually processes some of the data from those um, individuals who are, who are doing those surveys. So we're trying to learn like where are they catching them, what time, what are the weather temperatures, you know, all that stuff. Um, but right now, as there's only two paying um, programs, and that is the FWC and the South Florida Water Management Program. Now, in certain areas, it's not illegal for people to go out and catch them and remove them. Like in the national park, you cannot touch anything. Um, you can't touch anything. It's a Burmese python, crocodile, alligator, native snake, native turtle. It is a national park. You cannot touch anything. If you were to run into um, a python in the national park, unless you are a permanent hunter in the park, you cannot touch them. So my, my lab is permitted. We are able to remove non-native species as we encounter them in the national park. However, just your everyday Joe down here on vacation cannot go in there and pick up a snake. If you touch that snake if and you if anybody can print it on you, can, can catch you doing it, law enforcement, you can get in trouble. Um, because once that snake is in your hands, are you letting it go? Are you taking it with you? Um, and they're a conditional species as a pet. So you can't even own them without having permits anyway. So if it's alive in your car, unless you have a permit to be keeping it as a pet, you can't have it in your car anyways. And that's no matter where you catch it, even if you catch it in an area where you are allowed to remove them, if you don't have a permit to own it alive, you cannot have it alive in your possession. It must be euthanized on the spot. Um, and that is that is legal in, in, in some spots in South Florida. Um, so, you know, the everyday person can go catch a python, euthanize it, and then transport it. Um, but it's in, it's in very specific areas. And there's also the risk that what you're catching is not actually a python. Um, and so that has been 
that has happened before where people report, oh, this is a python and it, it's actually a corn snake or it's actually a, a king snake. Um, and, you know, pushed by fear, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, I thought it was a python and they killed it. You know, a beautiful Florida king snake that they euthanized because they thought, oh, it's a python. And so that's why there are these programs because they want people that they know can ID these snakes that are competent um, and are, you know, careful of the other animals that they are potentially interacting with. You know, you don't want to send someone out after pythons and have them run into a cottonmouth and think the cottonmouth is a python because you know not only is that going to cause medical issues for that person and, and harm if they get bit but it's also one of our native snakes that we want to protect and preserve right yeah that makes sense you don't want uh, joe schmo going out python hunting if they've never done it before <laughs> yeah yeah you can and see that could be a serious danger absolutely and, and not only that but those snakes get big um so if you were to run into a 15 foot snake um it could it could be, be problematic um, if you don't know how to handle them properly um, or if you get put in an awkward position. Yeah, they def it is amazing how big they are getting in the Everglades. Like they are based, they're obviously reaching their full kind of grown potential. It's uh, you see some of those snakes that they pull out. It's amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're huge. Well, uh, this hour has flown by. I really appreciate everything that uh, you've told us here today. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to ask you about really quick before we go is, can you let everybody know what that Croc Fest fundraiser is all about? Oh, absolutely. So twice a year, there is an event in Florida called Croc Fest. And it's put on by a handful of people who are really enthusiastic about crocodile conservation. And... For each of these fundraisers, um, research projects on a particular crocodilian, Cuban crocodile. This year, um, for this summer croc fest, they're actually fundraising for research on American crocodiles, and they have selected five donor or five beneficiaries from South Florida, Belize. Um, I think believe Jamaica is one as well. So five beneficiaries doing research um, across the Americas on American crocodiles and the money raised is going to go towards those research projects, go towards that conservation. Um, my lab is actually one of the beneficiaries. So I'm super excited because the American crocodile is an amazing species here in Florida. It's an ecosystem engineer. It's so important for the Everglades. And so all the research we're doing with them is to help you know, preserve that, that threatened species here and preserve the habitat that they live in. And that's why we do the invasive species work as well. It all ties in together. And so this fundraiser is mainly just for all, all these people who are passionate about crocodilians to come together. And there's live auctions, there's silent auctions um, to go and raise money for these research projects. And it, ch it changes every year what, what crocodilian the money goes to. That's very cool. And if people want to kind of stay up to date with those sort of biannually, I think is CrocDocs has an Instagram, right? Is that who typically puts it on or you guys are always involved so they can you can find the information there? So we are involved almost every single time. And this year we'll be there in full force. So if you want to meet a CrocDoc, we will be there. Um, but we do have an Instagram. It's the CrocDocs. And we do have information for the Summer CrocFest on there. There actually is a Facebook page for the CrocDoc event. Um, and the people who run it. So if you go on Facebook and type in CrocFest 2019, CrocFest 2018, you'll have a big page pop up with a crocodile as its header. And there's an event page and an actual Facebook page. And they'll keep you updated with all different sorts of crocodilian news and the information on the events. 
Very cool. And of course, I will have everything in the show notes for people to find. So it should be easy uh, to, to get to those websites. Can you let everybody know where they can find you online? I can be found on Instagram and Twitter with my username X snake underscore princess. Um, I also have a Facebook, which is underneath my name, which is Jenna Cole. Awesome. Well, Jenna, I really appreciate you taking the time today. That was, uh, I, I was super eager to talk to someone about this invasive species issue in Florida and uh, you definitely didn't disappoint and I'm sure the listeners will think the same. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, everyone, that is the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And Jenna, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed that conversation. And I do think I can speak on behalf of the entire hobby and say thank you to Jenna, as well as anybody else who's working in that sort of field, because the hobby has created some collateral damage. And there are people out there who are working their hardest to you know, figure out a way to fix that. And I think it was really interesting talking to Jenna, because this is someone who's literally dealing with you know, one of the worst examples of what can happen when the pet trade goes awry. And she still says, you know, there are really important reasons that we don't ban the pet trade, that we don't get out of it. I think that would be a very easy position for her to hold. She could just say, owning exotic animals is a ridiculous thing and we shouldn't be owning them and this is the result. But instead, she has a really level-headed and clear idea of how the pet trade can be beneficial and you know, sort of what regulations should be in place to make sure that it stays within its bounds. Really enjoyed that conversation. So thank you again for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, make sure you go check out animalsathome.ca slash podcast. You can learn how to support the show. You can also find all the show notes for everything for every episode there. The best thing you can do if you are enjoying the show and you want to show your support is share the content. Share it with everybody. Post it on Facebook. Share it anywhere you can. If you if you have an audience or you have people that you think you would enjoy the episodes, definitely share it because that really does help me a ton. And uh, I think that is it for me. So I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks a lot.